mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, for decades, tech gurus have promised the paper-free office is coming. Is the workplace of the future finally here? Also this morning, financial markets have been extremely volatile leading up to the Federal Reserve's first policy meeting of 2022. Can anything calm those fears as the nation faces its highest rate of inflation in 40 years? In our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, the Mississippi abortion case that some believe could lead to a reversal of Roe v. Wade. And to your health this morning, what to know about the prevention and treatment of seasonal flu as we enter the peak period of the season. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, January 27th, 2022. Today, the International Day of Commemoration in memory of the victims of the Holocaust. It was on this date that uh, Auschwitz was uh, liberated, 1945. So, hence the International Day of Commemoration in memory of the victims of the Holocaust. It is National Geographic Day. The National Geographic Society, founded in Washington, D.C., on this date in 1888. It's all the way back to the 19th century, National Chocolate Cake Day. It is Thomas Crapper Day in honor of the individual credited with patenting or creating the modern indoor toilet. Thomas Crapper Day. It is Punch the Clock Day. And believe me, there are some days when I like to punch the clock. I mean, physically punch the clock. And uh, Vietnam Peace Day, the Vietnam Peace Accords, signed on this date in 1973. So reasons to celebrate today. Here are some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. So the story is that two-thirds of those who are infected with the Omicron variant of COVID-19 have previously had the COVID virus. Let me repeat that statement because this is a, a big news story here. Two thirds of those infected with Omicron have previously had the COVID 19 virus. So uh, two out of three are doing this second time around. This is a new study out of Imperial College of London where researchers found about 65% of people said they sent COVID tests and questionnaires. Uh, that tested positive for the Omicron variant said they had previously gotten a positive coronavirus test. So 65. Two-thirds, an additional uh, 7.5% said that they suspected they had caught the virus previously, but had not received a positive test. They had uh, some symptoms, kind of felt, yeah, this is probably COVID, but it's you know not super serious and didn't bother to get a test. Scientists note that these cannot be technically labeled as reinfections because it is possible that some cases are residual infections. Still, it is known that the Omicron variant is more able to infect people who previously have had COVID-19 than other variants uh, due to an innate ability to dodge the immune system. So how about that? <clears throat> you know, there are a lot of people are going to be ta- who take that story and uh, will add credence to the anti-vax sentiment among some people. Well, why bother to get vaccinated if you're going to get it anyway? But, of course, the scientists and health officials will tell you the 
vaccine still keeps you from getting the more serious cases. And Omicron, even though it's the dominant strain, is not the only strain that's floating around out there. So there is still some benefits. Still, uh, with respect to the pandemic, over the past two years, what have health experts been saying over and over and over again? They've been drilling at home that it is important to mind your mental health because this is very stressful. Um, it's upended routines. It's thrown everything uh, into upheaval over the past two years. And so it is important to pay attention to your mental health. We hear it time and time again. Well, a new TikTok trend uh, now is seeing people uh, posting about the stupid things that they are doing to care for their stupid mental health. <laughs> See, this is the point of the pandemic where we are actually getting frustrated uh, with the things that we are doing that supposedly are protecting our mental health. That's even driving us crazy now. The hashtag stupid walk challenge has over 38.2 million views on TikTok. People have shared other activities they do for their stupid mental health. One video shows a user doing stupid yoga for her stupid mental health. Uh, Jill Diano is a licensed therapist and she says she understands the frustration. We're two years into this, two years of getting these recommendations about taking care of our mental health. And so even that can, you know, drive us batty after a while. She says, what I took from these, uh, videos, the absolute depletion and exhaustion that people are experiencing at this point, it actually makes a lot of sense. She also says, even if seemingly small self-care practices seem stupid, they still can make a positive impact on your mental health. Uh, while she also acknowledged that the wintertime can be particularly challenging. Uh, because one of the videos that I saw this morning, I was poking around, and shows somebody bundling up and going for a run, going for a jog in the dead of winter. <laughs> it's cold, it's snowy. You got to wear your snow boots for a jog <laughs> all, from, all in the name of my stupid mental health. <laughs> so the psychologist acknowledges that, yes, that can be challenging. But if you are even if you are tired of doing those stupid little things for your stupid mental health, she said you should still do them as skipping them could lead to increased anxiety, increased depression, feelings of loneliness and so on and so forth. <laughs> but I, I just like there's a revolt against <laughs> against our stupid mental health. <laughs> uh, speaking of running in the cold, um, the thing some people runners are just a, a different breed. Did you hear about this uh, marathon in Siberia? It may have smashed a Guinness World Record when runners braved temperatures of 63 degrees below zero. The Pole of Cold Marathon in Siberia. The start of the race was pushed up to the early morning, January 21st, after weather forecasts predicted the temperature would dip to minus 76 in the afternoon. <laughs> well, we can't have people running to minus 76. It's only going to be minus 63 in the morning, so let's do it then. Uh, Guinness currently lists the world's coldest marathon as the Siberian Ice Marathon, where the temperature was about 38 degrees below. Uh, Russian runner 
Vasily Lukin won the Pole of Cold Marathon in three hours and 22 minutes. That's, that's just that's just crazy. I mean, runners, particularly marathons, are uh, marathoners are a special breed. But that's uh, pretty pretty intense, even for that group. I just can't even imagine. A uh, couple of other uh, interesting stories among the uh, first things you need to know today. The most buzzworthy stories of the day. When I saw this on the Newswire, I immediately raised an eyebrow. Apparently, McDonald's is getting set to introduce the option to hack its menu. Allow me to explain. For the first time ever, the fast food giant is featuring fan favorites that you can mix and match and assemble to make your own unique order. Starting on Monday and for a limited time, customers can visit McDonald's in person or use the app to order menu hack items to build custom meals. For example, one possible hack would be the hash brown McMuffin, uh, where you put the hash browns uh, on top of the sausage or what have you in the egg and the cheese on a McMuffin. So you just add that in there. Another option would be the surf and turf, which would be a double cheeseburger topped with a filet of fish. On one sandwich. Mm hmm. So, uh, menu hack masters are encouraged to share their favorites on social media using the hashtag McDonald's Hacks. So, this is all, you know, a, a publicity stunt, and it's for a limited time. You can create your own unique menu items by mixing and matching the items. And this, I, <laughs> I saw this and I thought, this is a good idea, but. The last few times I've been through the drive-thru, the order, they can't get the orders right when I <laughs> when I just order regular stuff off the menu. How in the world are they going to get these things right? <laughs> they, they have trouble getting getting the order right on a regular, uh, off the regular menu. I can't imagine what you can order, whatever you want, in these menu hacks. Who knows what you might actually get? You know what I mean? That's <laughs> seem to have enough trouble getting the orders right. And under normal circumstances, so I don't know how this will work, but uh, you can try it if you, <laughs> you want to take your uh, take your meal uh, into your own hands. And how about this? Maybe the day's most significant news. What do they say from uh, quoting Paul Harvey from all those years ago? This day's news of most lasting significance may be this: a Slovakian company called Klein Vision, is looking to change transportation forever with its air car, which has just passed its flight certification process in Slovakia. Yes, that's right. The flying car is finally here. This vehicle can both drive like a traditional car and fly like a plane, thanks to retractable wings that hide Uh, that retract into the body of the car, transformer style. Uh, It doesn't really look like a normal car when it's on the highway, and it certainly doesn't look like a normal plane when it's in the air. But uh, (laughs) especially on the highway, you've got a a rear-mounted stabilizer fin and a propeller, which remain visible even in car mode. But for bragging rights, that's probably an added bonus. It's a sports car that flies. The air car 
has successfully completed 70 hours of flight testing that is compatible with European Aviation Safety Agency standards, including more than 200 takeoffs and landings. Air car certification opens the uh, opens the door for mass production of flying cars. The inventor, Stefan Klein, a leader of the development team and the vehicle's test pilot, says it is official and the final confirmation of our ability to change uh, mid-distance travel forever. Anton Zajic, the co-founder of the project, says in the early 20th century, the car was the epitome of freedom. Now, in 2022, Aircar offers the next level of freedom. So there you go. If you've been wondering, when are we going to get flying cars? Weren't we supposed to have flying cars by now? Well, now, apparently we do. As to how soon they might mass produce this, when it might be available, either in Europe or even in this country, who knows? But apparently, the concept has worked, it is there, and we have flying cars. They are a reality. How about that? There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, mostly cloudy today with a high of 28, wind chills of 9 below at times. Cloudy and really cold tonight, a low of 13. The Finley Police Department says a man was arrested after leading police on a chase that ended when he hit a tree. Police were dispatched to an address on Lima Avenue on the report of a domestic dispute occurring. Upon arrival, officers learned that the 28-year-old had left the scene in a car. Police located the vehicle, but it sped off and drove all the way into Mount Blanchard, where it went off the road and hit a tree. The suspect tried to run, but was quickly apprehended. Get more on our website. Now that challenges have been issued against the new state legislative maps that were redrawn by the Ohio Redistricting Commission over the weekend and passed along party lines, the Ohio Supreme Court will now consider whether they're constitutional. Now this comes after the Ohio Supreme Court ruled the previous maps were gerrymandered toward Republicans. Well, because the group couldn't come to a bipartisan agreement, the maps will only hold for four years instead of ten. Owen and Yolanda Harris reporting. You can get more on the redistricting process on our website. Children's Mentoring Connection of Hancock County has received a proclamation from the mayor in recognition of January being National Mentoring Month. Our mission is to positively impact lives, one meaningful connection at a time. Stacy Shaw's the executive director of Children's Mentoring Connection. In honor of National Mentoring Month, Children's Mentoring Connection is recognizing our volunteer mentors with yard signs showing that we love our mentors. Stacy says a woman who's been mentoring locally for 40 years and her husband have established a matching donation fund up to $40,000 to support their mentoring programs. Learn more about the organization and how you can help on our website. The Bengals and the Chiefs will meet up in the AFC title game on Sunday. Bengals QB Joe Burrow says they already beat them once and they're out to do it again. I'm tired of the underdog narrative. And we're a really, really good team. We're here to, we're here to make noise. And you know, teams are going to have to pay attention to us. We're, we're, we're coming for it all. The Bengals and Chiefs game for the AFC title will kick off at 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchak with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Well, you know, for years we've been told that the paperless office was coming. 
With the technology we have today, is the office of the future finally here? Andre Faji is a director of engagement marketing for PandaDoc, which is a leading all-in-one document automation software company. So, Andre, like I said, we we've heard this for so many years. I have to admit, I'm a bit I'm a bit skeptical. It it may be possible. But is it practical to go paperless in 2022? Uh, that is a fantastic question. And as every day goes by, the answer becomes stronger and stronger, which is yes. It is not only um, possible, it's practical. And we found that 68% of small business owners have already crossed the chasm. and they're, they're, They've adopted a digital document management solution of some, of some sort to help um, scale and operate their business. Now, beyond the skepticism, uh, again, just simply because we've heard this was coming for so many years and yet the technology wasn't quite there, there's also the hurdle of a comfort level with this technology. You referenced the survey that you recently commissioned, uh, and that also found that only about half of small business owners are comfortable with this kind of technology. What are some of the benefits to transitioning to a digital document management solution and how can going paperless help streamline the operations of a business? The the obvious one that comes to mind for for everyone is going to be the environmental impact, right? Just just less paper usage is better for the environment. But when it comes to the day-to-day needs of a small business owner, you know, your, your two most important resources are your costs and your time. And going paperless can help with both. So when we talk about cost savings, we talk about all the expenses a small business owner incurs around um, buying paper, buying ink for their printer, sometimes buying or upgrading their printer. And then, of course, postage, which is actually sending all those documents out to um, your customers. Um, you know, when, when we kind of dug into the research, we found that many business owners said that they can save upwards of $5,000 a year in expenses just by making the switch to digital. And the other point that I mentioned is time, right? So, you know, how much time are you spending literally creating, editing, and sending documents and waiting for the recipient? Did they get it? Did they receive it? Do they have questions? Are they going to sign it? I mean, that transaction can sometimes take days or weeks to fulfill just because of the time spent with paper, with a, a paper led um, document world, right? So when you go digital, everything happens in real time and automatically. And as a business, a business owner, you have the benefits of getting the, the insight. Did that person receive it? Did they open it? Do they have red lines or questions on it? Mm-hmm. And it just removes all that friction between you and the customer. Now, as you mentioned in the survey, about 68% of small business owners, and again, this is, uh, I guess before we get to that, uh, maybe a bit of a sidebar, we're talking to small business owners as well. This is no longer just for big corporate America. This is for small and medium-sized businesses uh, as well. Absolutely. To that point, there's a lot of great tools out there available for small business owners, um, many companies will say that their solution is for small, medium, and large businesses. But if you're evaluating this for the first time, I would go and say, which of these vendors primarily caters to business owners that, that have a company my size? So if you're a, a sole proprietor or a truly small business with maybe three to five employees, you want to make sure that your vendor 
it has a solution that is primarily built for a business of your size because there are larger vendors out there that are maybe built for more complex corporations and they do have an offering for a small business, but it's oftentimes way too complicated to use. So it doesn't actually help solve any problems for small business owners. A fair point. Uh, now, as I was going to say, you referenced that number 68% of small business owners already utilize digital documents at some level. How many of those uh, are, have all have gone all in? I mean, are, are have they com- completely gone paperless in, in this respect? Or are they just in some cases? I guess the big question, what are some of the challenges that small business owners face when considering this transition to digital? Absolutely. Well, 56% of small business owners, when it comes to challenges, they're, they're struggling with a cost-effective solution. And another 66% are saying that they're, they're struggling finding um, a solution that's easy for them to use. Because, again, if you have employees, not only is it important for you as a business owner to learn how to use it, but you might need to train two, three, four people how to use the same tool. And if it's not easy to use for you, how are you going to teach it to them? Right. So small business owners are faced with these challenges of understanding. I know that going digital is right. I just don't know where to start. And 44% feel outright just intimidated by the process. Yeah. So while there is definitely a move towards more business going digital, there is still healthy skepticism and concern for legitimate reasons. What about uh, while we're on the subject of concerns and uh, things that may be holding business owners back? What about the concerns over security? It seems like every day we hear uh, about a, a hack attack or a data breach of some kind. I'm sure that's one of the questions you get an, an awful lot. If I'm putting all of these important documents uh, you know, online in the cloud, you know, going digital, does what is my exposure to you know, hackers that we hear are out there everywhere? I think what many people don't understand is that, um, you know, digital today means something a little bit different than what it meant even five or 10 years ago. Um, you know, even for all of us who are at home right now, right, if I send a file from my computer to be printed on my printer that is literally in the same room as me, hackers have a higher probability of being able to access the content stored in that file from my printer um, than they do through a document management solution that is built with security-grade encryption and physical security top of mind. So solutions today, um, especially as it relates to document management, I mean, think about HIPAA compliance. Think about GDPR compliance for small businesses um, in Europe. Think about FERPA compliances for um, schools. I mean, all of these are very high-grade um, you know, data and privacy compliances. And it's really important to make sure that whichever vendor you choose, um, they, they're very transparent about the certifications and compliance they have today, because that's where you're going to get the peace of mind for security. Interesting stuff. Again, uh, like I said, for years, we've been told that the paperless office is coming and the technology that we have 
right now means that uh, that someday is finally here for many businesses and many more could be taking advantage of it. Andre Faji is director of engagement for uh, marketing for a Panda Doc. And we referenced the survey. We just kind of scratched the surface on some of the data. Where do folks go to get more information about all of this? Well, we're going to publish all of our findings today on our website. So you can go to pandadoc.com and learn more. Um, about what small business owners are, are, are struggling with and also what type of opportunities are they seeing by going to um, a digital uh, solution. And you can find all of that at pandadoc.com. Andre, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. Well, the Federal Reserve has wrapped up its first policy meeting of 2022, and my goodness, but the financial markets have been on a roller coaster of late in anticipation of what lies ahead. Joining us to break it all down is Bankrate Chief Financial Analyst Greg McBride. And Greg, first off, what was what you heard from Jerome Powell pretty much what you expected to hear? Or was there anything that you would consider a surprise? Kind of give us your initial reaction here. No real surprises. I mean, that the statement itself was maybe a little bit softer than it could have been. I mean, if they really wanted to take an aggressive posture against inflation, uh, there were a couple of you know additional things that they they could have done uh, that uh, hinting at a larger than uh, customary quarter point hike in March, for example, winding down the bond purchases now as opposed to in March. They didn't do either one of those. Uh, so the statement itself seemed all, you know, a little dovish or, you know, basically, uh, you know, a little hands off um, uh, in terms of policy. The press conference that he gave afterwards, uh, markets took that as a little bit more hawkish. Again, I don't know that he necessarily had any revelations uh, in that. Mm-hmm. He was maybe certainly more plain spoken than than you know, reading between the lines on there. The, the statement issued, but, uh, you know, again, I, he's, the Fed's not going to paint themselves into a corner, uh, simply because they can't. There's, you know, they're very data dependent and, uh, you know, there are a lot of uncertainties out there. So, you know, they, what? you know, can't really offer, you know, yeah. firm times and dates and those kind of things. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of room for surprise. Yeah. Were, were you surprised that they weren't more aggressive? I mean, it was kind of interesting. Reuters had a, had a story ahead of this week's meeting where they pointed out that this has been the most lagging action the Fed has ever taken in response to inflation. They've never let it get this high before taking action. Um, so have they tied their hands by uh, waiting this long? I mean, were you surprised that they uh, haven't been more aggressive? Uh, no, they were late to get the memo uh, about inflation in the first place. They have pivoted and, you know, taken a more, um, uh, you know, a posture more towards, hey, we're going to we're going to work on corralling this. But I was a little disappointed that they weren't more hawkish. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, I think there were a couple of things they could have done uh, to strike a more uh, aggressive tone towards inflation at this meeting. And uh, they didn't do that. And and the reason that 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 I think that would have mattered is inflation and and particularly what the fed watches on inflation has a lot to do with expectations, what Mm -hmm. people expect inflation to be in the future. Well, if the fed takes a more aggressive posture now, 
it, you know, it's, it's the old, you know, carry a big stick and then you don't have to use it type of thing. If they, if they took a more aggressive posture now, I think it tamps down some of those expectations and, and maybe does some of the, the listing for them. They didn't do that. And, uh, you know, I, I think the jury is going to be out as to whether or not they get squeamish about hiking rates, uh, you know, if there is a sharper drawdown in the markets, for example. Do you think maybe the concern is that uh, if the circumstances that have driven inflation in the current economy, uh, largely driven by the pandemic, and this is so unusual, is there maybe some concern that the usual response will not necessarily have the usual effect? It won't. And that's because so much of this is tied to the supply chain. The mm-hmm. Fed raising interest rates will dull demand a little bit. It will be a break on the economy and slow it down the demand side, but it won't fix the supply chain. And until we see uh, a sustained improvement in the supply chain, we're going to be contending with these higher than usual price increases. And yeah. so the question is, okay, well, how long is it going to take for the supply chain to get corrected? You know, a lot of that is just really dependent upon the virus. Um, you know, a lot of factories and warehouses in, in, in Asia, for example, are now shutting down for a period of time because of the Omicron wave. Yeah. Well, that's just creates the next uh, wave or series of bottlenecks that make their way through the supply chain. Yeah, I, I think we had the uh, story just yesterday on the program that many of the uh, uh, many companies in in this country are down to like a five day supply of computer chips and are not getting more because of exactly the reason you mentioned uh, shutdowns uh, in Asia. So just to you know, as an example of that point, and there are so many unknowns largely because of this upheaval that has been driven by the pan, uh, pandemic and there's no real roadmap to predict how it all plays out how likely is it that the fed will, will be able to stick to its plans on the number of rate hikes how large they will be and so on well i don't know that there are plans it's it's you know kind of an unwritten script and it will evolve uh, over time depending on the data um, I, I think my inclination is that uh, when in doubt, they will err on the side of, of, you know, being more hands off than, than hands on. In mm-hmm. other words, uh, you know, if the market were down 20%, uh, I think they'd be much more reluctant to, to raise interest rates or, or be more aggressive on, on policy. Uh, depending upon, you know, global events, those type of things, uh, you know, that could, could derail any, uh, intentions to, raise interest rates or, or uh, downsize the balance sheet for a period of time. So, um, you know, it's, it, it, it'll evolve as conditions evolve. History suggests, however, that the Fed doesn't tend to end up being as aggressive as they think they are going to be. Um, history suggesting, of course, that you know, they tend to be a little bit more uh, hands-off whenever there's any type of uncertainty. And you bring up a good point that certainly more is going on uh, that is influencing things than just the pandemic. Uh, all of the uncertainty uh, in Eastern Europe and and uh, all of these other things that are going on as well. So a lot more going on than just the pandemic. So obviously when it comes to you know, the average person's investment, certainly not going to tell people that it's time to make drastic changes in your retirement account or anything like that. But how will all of this affect Joe Average? What do we take away from it? What should we be doing in response, if anything? Well, a couple of things, one pertaining to borrowing, the other pertaining to the investing side of the equation. 
On the borrowing side, if you have variable rate debt like credit cards, now's the time to, to take action. Lock in a 0% or other low rate balance transfer offer. That insulates you from rate hikes for 12 to 18 months and gives you a runway to get that debt paid off once and for all because the cost of that, the cost of money is going to go up. And that means variable rate debt outstanding is going to become costlier. Paying it back is going to be a little bit more challenging as rates go up. Uh, also, any new borrowing is is going to be at a higher rate. Now, on the investing side, uh, you know, the less you do, the better. If you have a diversified in, uh, portfolio, one mm-hmm. that's appropriate for your time horizon and your goals, the best thing to do at this point is is hands off nothing. I, you know, this is just a run of the mill market correction. We we t- on average get about one a year. Mm-hmm. We're a little overdue. We didn't have anything you know, for basically eighteen months. The market just went up, and and you know yeah. we didn't have any notable drawdowns in in the market. So this is normal, and we will see more of it this year. This is going to be a choppy year. This is not going to be one of those years where every time you check your four hundred one k balance, it's going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just going to be choppy this year. But the big picture is this: the Fed is raising interest rates. Because the economy is doing much better. The economy is going to grow 4% this year on an after-inflation basis. Unemployment's below 4%. Uh, people are spending money. Demand is really, really strong. Ultimately, those are the type of things that are good for corporate earnings and stock prices. So really maintain that long-term perspective uh, in the face of short-term volatility. Yeah, we say it all the time. And here is a perfect example of uh, that that uh, advice, that narrative playing itself out in that respect. Again, uh, Bankrate Chief Financial Analyst Greg McBride uh, with us this morning, uh, breaking down the uh, Fed's first policy meeting of 2022. We've got more uh, a link for more information from bankrate.com at our webpage. And Greg, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thank you. So yesterday, news leaked that uh, Justice Stephen Breyer would retire from the uh, Supreme Court at the end of the uh, current term, giving President Biden his first opportunity to put his stamp on the court. Now, keep in mind, Breyer has been a member of the staunchly liberal wing of the court all along. So replacing him, uh, President Biden replacing him will have absolutely no impact on the ideological makeup of the court. Uh, But still, it is big news. And uh, obviously, uh, this is going to be at the uh, end of the current term, so it'll have no impact on those current cases that are pending before the court, in particular, the one that many believe could overturn, could lead to an overturn of uh, Roe v. Wade. Last weekend marked the 49th anniversary of the Supreme Court's historic and controversial Roe decision, an anniversary that was marked by demonstrations and rallies among pro-life and pro-choice advocates alike. The reason for even more attention being focused on the abortion debate is, of course, due to the fact that back in early December, the current Supreme Court heard arguments in that Mississippi case that many believe could lead to a reversal of the decision. When that case was being presented to the high court back in early December, we spoke with Dr. Scott Gerber, constitutional law professor at Ohio Northern University and an associated scholar with the Brown University Political Theory Project, and we asked if there is something unique about this Mississippi case as compared to previous challenges to Roe, or whether it is simply a case of timing given the conservative makeup 
of the current Supreme Court. From December of last year, it is today's Throwback Thursday. The court has expressly reaffirmed Roe on three occasions over the years, and really the only difference this time through is uh, there are now six conservative justices Mm -hmm. on the court. And is it an all-or-nothing kind of thing? I mean, can you envision an outcome where they can leave Roe intact and uphold the the Mississippi uh, law? Well, the two um, parties to the case don't think so. You know, I guess they could move the point of uh, when a state can regulate abortion earlier in the uh, uh, in the pregnancy, you know, mm-hmm. maybe to 10 weeks or 12 weeks or something like that. But that would be the only way I think they could do it. You wrote an op-ed in the Daily Caller arguing that this case could uh, have a, a major implications for the longstanding legal principle of stare decisis. Correct. What's interesting about this case for me is both sides of the case point to stare decisis uh, to justify their position. And it can't it can't be. So one of the sides is sort of reinventing what stare decisis means. And on that point, the right is actually picking up Justice Thomas's theory of stare decisis. And he doesn't think that stare decisis, which has let a prior decision stand, Mm -hmm. applies when you're interpreting the Constitution, because the Constitution is a written text, whereas uh, stare decisis originated as a a common law uh, device, i.e. when a judge decides, say, a negligence case, and the court defines negligence in a certain way, and then there's another negligence case. Those aren't textual cases. Those are just judge-made law cases. So that's that's the theoretical difference, and Clarence Thomas is actually the one that came up with that. So from the legal standpoint, this is significant, not just because we're talking about the uh, highly charged issue of abortion, but because there may be larger implications here that go far beyond this particular case. To what extent will they be looking at that uh, when they mull over their decision? I think they'll look at it a lot. You know, Roberts, um, he issued a decision uh, in dissent in uh, the uh, 2016 abortion access case Mm -hmm. in dissent. And then in 2020, uh, an almost identical law from a different state was before the court, and he voted with the majority because of stare decisis. So he takes it seriously. Thomas will say something probably about it, and he'll probably just repeat his argument that if, if as a matter of constitutional text, uh, Roe was wrong at the get-go, it's wrong now, and you overrule it. Uh, Kavanaugh, in one of these more recent uh, abortion access cases, came up with a, a little uh, test of stare decisis on his own. So I think he might want to uh, use this case to flesh out what he views stare decisis to be, And then Amy Coney Barrett also, when she was a law professor, had written about stare decisis and things like that. So, yes, I think many of them will use this as an opportunity to say something important about stare decisis. So, because there are so many other uh, legal issues uh, that will factor in to this as well, beyond just the abortion question, is it fair to say well, this was a a failure of the uh, conservative realignment of the court if they don't overturn Roe v. Wade. 
Yes, and a, a lot of uh, folks on the right are saying that. They're saying that if this makeup was six uh, Republican nominees yeah. doesn't overrule Roe, then the conservative legal movement has essentially failed, and they would be really angry at the Federalist Society in particular because the Federalist Society has had such a, a leading role in suggesting nominees. Again, part of our conversation with uh, Dr. Scott Gerber, Ohio Northern University and uh, Brown University's Political Theory Project on the case that many believe could lead to a reversal of the uh, controversial and historic Roe v. Wade decision uh, that was uh, argued before the court back in early December. If you want to hear the entire conversation, which is much went in much more in-depth uh, in, in this, you can go to... Uh, your favorite podcasting platform. Look at the uh, Good Mornings Podcast Edition and go back to December 1st of last year. And uh, again, talking about all of the, not just the question of abortion itself that will be decided in this case or could be decided in this case, uh, but also the uh, broader legal implications. And of course, there are always political implications from this as well. Not likely to get a decision until the end of of the Supreme Court's current term in June from December of last year. It is today's Throwback Thursday. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. <laughs> Talk about a, a strange happening at, uh, at the U.S. border. Zachary Taylor Blood age 33, arrived at a Border Patrol checkpoint near the U.S.-Mexico border with an American flag-draped coffin. American flag-draped coffin on the back of his van. This happened back in October. When asked what he had, he replied, dead guy, Navy guy. The agent uh, at the Border Patrol, who happens to be a military veteran, got suspicious because... Uh, Upon further inspection, the coffin was rusty and dented with a flag crudely taped onto it with packing tape. (laughs) Another Border Patrol agent, also a veteran, agreed that this was not the standard protocol for the funeral procession of a military veteran. (laughs) A search followed and two live men were found inside the coffin. It was a uh, (laughs) smuggling across the border. Points for creativity, but no, it didn't work. So. Uh, elsewhere in the uh, broken news, this is impressive. It's actually impressive this guy is still alive. 63-year-old Leonard Brown said he was driving on Tuesday on Route 28 in Somerville, Massachusetts, approaching the southbound ramp of Interstate 93 when something crashed through his windshield. Went right by my head, he said. He pulled over to examine the damage and found he had just barely missed being hit by a piece of concrete that was about 15 inches across and several inches thick, had gone through the front window and was sitting on the back deck of his Audi Q5 in the back seat. He said he was visiting Massachusetts from California so his wife can undergo cancer treatments, and he feels very lucky to be alive himself. After all of this, that's crazy. Can you imagine? Just driving along, minding your own business, suddenly a big, big hunk of concrete comes flying through your windshield. That's, that's crazy. <clears throat> a South Dakota police officer is going viral for uh, for an arrest that he made. 
uh, in which he went above and beyond. Uh, Officer Sam Burr reportedly pulled a driver over on Tuesday. The driver was making a delivery to Anastasia Elsinger. Uh, The driver is a DoorDash uh, delivery driver. He was making a delivery at the time when he was pulled over. Um, Ms. Elsinger saw on the app that the driver was stopped (laughs) on the way to her house, and she assumed her food would be delivered late, if at all. But Officer Burr took it upon himself to finish the delivery, showing up at her door (laughs) and said, I I know I'm not who you're expecting. (laughs) Uh, No word on exactly what the order was or what the DoorDash driver was specifically arrested for. But Officer Burr has quickly become a viral video sensation for his kind deed and making sure the woman got her order. See, this is, uh, you know, the uh, advent of uh, DoorDash and delivery services and all of that. This adds a whole new layer of responsibility to uh, officers who stop vehicles, I think. It just makes their job that much more challenging. But uh, anyway, a happy ending there for at least the uh, uh, person who was getting the delivery. Uh, I thought this was kind of weird, just a a strange story all the way around. Uh, 36-year-old Tiffany Hall of Ohio, uh, Colebrook Township, uh, 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 over around the Akron area. Uh, 36-year-old Tiffany Hall uh, has agreed to plead guilty to setting her husband on fire during an argument last May. She set her husband on fire. Apparently... The two were arguing about using a phone. (laughs) She and her 62-year-old husband were fighting at home about, apparently he was spending too much time on his phone. So she threw a bucket of gasoline on him. And first of all, who has a bucket of gasoline just sitting around? Just a bucket of gasoline sitting around. But apparently she had it just in case. (laughs) She threw it on him and set him on fire. She allegedly also stole a vehicle and fled the scene before police were able to catch up and detain her. Her husband did survive. He was treated to the burn unit Akron Children's Hospital. He's uh, recovering, but uh, isn't that crazy? I would guess she's in jail. He's probably looking for a divorce lawyer, I would think. Wow. That is just uh, all kinds of weird. Um, Let's see here. (laughs) <laughs> How about this? Um, they say a criminal always returns to the scene of the crime. That proved to be a costly mistake for one thief who returned not just not once, not twice, but three more times. A man who assaulted the owners and robbed a Jersey City grocery store three times in six days was captured by a waiting police officer when he came back a fourth time. <laughs> Finally, Third time's the charm. They got uh, they got wise to it, and they <laughs> the police staked out. And when he returned the fourth time, nabbed him. Store surveillance video taken to the store on Friday shows the suspect jumping across the counter just as he had the previous three times. Only this time, the robber was stunned when an off-duty police officer who had stopped by to check on the store jumped out from the back. <laughs> and arrested. Robert tried to make his escape, but he was caught and arrested around the corner by the officer and the store's uh, the store owner's son, uh, who is also a Jersey City police officer. <laughs> the uh, robber 
suspected of being under the influence of a controlled substance, was charged with four counts of strong-armed robbery and one count of resisting arrest. So, (laughs) just went back and dipped into that well one too many times there, I guess. There you go. That is today's broken news report. (laughs) This, This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less. Of Hancock County Veterans Services, we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Omicron, what's the real story? We keep getting mixed signals. We're told it's not nearly as dangerous as the other variants. Then we're told hospitals are filled. We're told we have to get vaccinations, but even if we do, we're told we have to wear masks. So what's the real deal with Omicron? Is it dangerous? Are the vaccines effective against it? And how contagious is it? You want answers? We'll continue to provide you the information you need. 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and 95.5 FM. Now time for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that change our, that, that shape our lives. Um, obviously, and, and there's no doubt about this, the world has changed in many ways, both large and small, since we first heard the term COVID-19. To that end, an interesting compilation of responses to the question that uh, somebody posted on uh, one user posted on the uh, Reddit bulletin board uh, site, Reddit. I don't know if you're familiar with Reddit. Interesting dialogues always going on 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 Reddit, kind of a social media slash bulletin board site. Somebody posted this question: What normal thing pre-COVID feels weird? Now, and the responses show just how much things have changed in the past two years, with many of the responses being things in our lives that we wouldn't have given a second thought to in 2019 that now just seem very weird. For example, blowing the candles out on a birthday cake and then taking out the candles and giving the cake to other people. We wouldn't have given that a second thought a couple of years ago. Now that seems, I don't know, not exactly sanitary. You know what I mean? Um, somebody else uh, said, and I thought this was a, an astute observation, watching post-apocalyptic movies and seeing things on the shelves at abandoned stores that we all know would be long gone, like toilet paper. <laughs> and it's true. You watch a movie and there's a post-apocalyptic movie and there are abandoned stores and there's stuff on the shelves and toilet paper is on the shelves. You know that would be gone. You know that would be gone because we've seen it happen. <laughs> we know firsthand. Uh, one woman said uh, she put on some lipstick the other day for the first time since COVID started. And she said, my six-year-old looked confused and said, mommy, your lips look all hurt and bloody. <laughs> and you think she's six. So if you haven't worn lipstick for two years she probably has no recollection of mommy ever doing that before so it looks weird to her so again just something really weird and then there were some more serious replies uh one person said i have an auditory processing disorder and masks have created so many awkward embarrassing and confusing interactions for me because i can't read lips to sub uh, supplement my my hearing uh, or to uh, overcompensate for my uh, my hearing disorder. And uh, that is becoming a widespread issue, actually. Jacqueline Theek is a clinical director and speech-language pathologist at the Speech and Learning Institute in North Palm Beach, Florida. 
tells uh, ABC News there that uh, she has seen a 364% increase in referrals for children experiencing speech delays. She said it is very important the kids see your face so that they learn how to form words and how to communicate using the English language. So they are watching your mouth to learn how to do that. And with masks, it makes it uh, harder to do that. So there's been a huge spike in uh, speech delays among children. So Very interesting stuff there about the ways in which the world has changed and normal things two years ago that seem very weird now. And then there's one other one here that I think really speaks to what we're going to talk about here next. And that is the concept of still going to work when you're sick because you're not too sick to work. You know, we used to do that and not give it a second thought. Nowadays, that's certainly a big no-no. Well, we first started hearing the advice to get our flu shot back around early October, but right now is when we typically get into prime seasonal flu season. And uh, just like last year, the biggest thing we want to avoid is a twindemic of both COVID and the flu. Dr. Nadine Halliburton-Foster joins us this morning with the information we need to know about this flu season. How, First of all, how has the ongoing pandemic of COVID-19 changed how doctors think about the flu? How does it change the equation? Well, we are extra cognizant of the differences and crossover symptoms so that we recognize the flu faster. We recognize um, the COVID faster and we treat flu faster. There are tests for both to help with diagnosis. So it's critical to consult your healthcare provider at the first sign of any symptoms. So talk a little bit about the uh, flu season so far. Uh, How many uh, Americans have been affected? How serious is it? Lay it all out for us what we know about this year's flu season specifically. Well, this year's flu season, as compared to last year, we have seen an uptick in cases around the country. Um, and I'm working with Genentech to bring awareness of the importance of preparation during this new season so we can recognize the symptoms, be diagnosed, diagnosed quickly, and be treated expeditiously. The first line of defense is to get your flu shot. If you're six months or older, CDC recommends that you get this shot annually. And it's not too late to get your flu shot now because it can last, um, the flu viruses can circulate up until late May. Yeah, uh, certainly a very important point, even though uh, we've been hearing about this from, you know, for the past several months, uh, still certainly uh, very important to get it if you haven't uh, already. You mentioned that you've seen an uptick in uh, cases this year. Is that because we are maybe a little more lax about our preventive measures? I mean, last year we were so cognizant of wearing masks and hand washing and so on in an effort to prevent the spread of COVID. It also helped prevent the spread of flu. So is it that we are more lax about that now and we're seeing the impact? Or is this uh, just a more serious strain that is in circulation this year? It is that we are more lax. We are not wearing Uh, You don't see as much mask wearing um, this year as compared to last year. Mm -hmm. You see more people out and about 
this year as compared to last year. Um, we need to sanitize surfaces more. Yeah. <laughs> and be, be well, aware people are getting, you know, a little bit more lax about that as well. Yeah. I, I, I was going to mention, I mean, as you said, the flu shot is, of course, the first and best line of defense. But talk about some of those other ways that we can help protect ourselves from the flu. Obviously, wash hands, wear your mask, um, clean your surfaces, six feet, stay six feet apart, avoid people who are sick, cover your cough, cover your sneeze. And if you do get the flu, call your doctor, call your healthcare provider. Um, the flu hits fast and furious. So within the first 48 hours, if you don't get uh, treated within that that window, it's likely that you're going to have to just ride it right out for seven to ten days. And you can get very sick. It can put you in the hospital. Yeah. And we don't want people who have the flu to go to the hospital when we have such a burden with COVID in hospitals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's treatable. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that is uh, a very important point. It is treatable if you uh, talk to your healthcare provider uh, immediately upon uh, experiencing those first symptoms, right? How do you yes. how yes. do you treat the, the, the flu? What is the typical treatment? Well, antivirals. There are antivirals out there to treat the flu. I personally love Zofluza. It is the first single-dose oral prescription medication for the flu in patients 12 years of age and older. It is different in that it attacks the flu virus at its source if taken within 48 hours of symptom onset. And it significantly reduces the symptoms, significantly reduces the duration of the symptoms. And it can also be taken if you are exposed to someone with the flu well, within that, was, that first 48 hours. That, <laughs> that was the other thing that I was going to ask. I mean, you know, we can be uh, very careful and, and all of that, but the one thing we can't control uh, sometimes is, is other people. If we find we have been exposed to someone who has the flu, uh, are there any ways to prevent getting it ourselves? Absolutely. As I mentioned, Zofluza is a great drug. It's one pill that you can take that will mitigate your symptoms. And in, in clinical studies, it was shown to decrease the contraction of the flu by about 90%. Mm. Now, it does have side effects. So talk to your healthcare provider about um, this drug. And it has to be taken by 12 years or older. So not, not below 12 years old. Yeah. Um, and again, all of those other things that we talk about, ways to prevent the flu, flu shot, sanitizing surfaces, washing hands, so on, uh, also going to be helpful in terms of prevention, uh, not contracting it if we uh, do come into contact with other people as well. So, again, uh, Dr. Nadine Halliburton-Foster with us uh, this morning to talk about uh, flu season and, uh, you know, its prevalence right now. Where do we get more information? 
you can go to the CDC website, cdc.gov. They're a great resource for what's happening in your area with the flu and also to get more information on the flu. And zofluza.com is a great resource as well on information on the flu and treatment for the flu. And I'm going to spell that for you. It's X-O-F-L-U-Z-A. Very good. And uh, we will link up to it on our webpage to make it even easier. Dr. Halliburton Foster, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. And that will close out our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program, of course. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the program at our webpage. And that, of course, is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the show, NFL analyst and three-time Super Bowl champion Mark Schlereth will join us to preview this weekend's conference championship games in advance of Super Bowl 56. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.